This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called Some Stereotypes I Can Live With, and it's dedicated to twins everywhere. About 1.6 million twins are born each year worldwide, with one in every 42 children born a twin. Techniques such as IVF have seen the rate of twin births rise by a third since the 1980s. There have only ever been two recorded cases of semi-identical twins. This occurs when two separate sperm fertilise the same egg. Hmm, crikey. In 1952, the Cray twins became the last prisoners to be held in the Tower of London after failing to report for national service. And for the birth of their twins, Beyonce and Jay-Z built a $1 million maternity ward, including a neonatal wing at their Hollywood mansion. Can you hear me properly and clearly? I can hear you properly. You've got your headphones in. Yes. That's my guest today, Stephen K. Amos. Often, twins develop a language that only they can understand, and the name for that is Christophasia. And talking of language, a judge in New Zealand blocked parents who wished to name their twins Fish and Chips. Now, do I need, do you want me to isolate this end, my vocal, or that's good, your end? Uh, you could do. I think you meant self-isolate. I was like, I don't think we're going to catch anything. <laughs> Stephen started his career emceeing at London clubs before quickly becoming one of the biggest names on the UK and international circuits. His numerous TV and radio appearances include Have I Got News For You, Mock The Week, The Royal Variety Show, QI and Live at the Apollo. He's hosted a documentary, Penis Envy, in which he explored men's ongoing insecurities with penis size, which led to one of his best-known punchlines, Some Stereotypes I Can Live With. To quote the Sunday Times, Amos is officially becoming a national treasure. Stephen and I talked about friendships, family, age, loss, inspirational teachers, Twitter and race. But I started by asking him about his recent BBC show, Pilgrimage, The Road to Rome. Do you know what? When they asked me to do that, I first of all went, no. Why on earth would I want to walk anywhere, let alone to Rome? I didn't I have to... you down as a walker, I have to say. If I think of my hiking friends, you wouldn't be on the list. Thank you. You would be absolutely 100% correct. Walking <laughs> to me is like, no, I, no, it's just not in my remit. Um, I'm very lazy. But however, as a direct result of that, I now do walk. Isn't that mad? So it's made you feel, because it's meant to sort of mentally enlighten you, but in your case, it just got you to get out of the house and have a little wander. <laughs> I like wandering, you know, but you know <laughs> what it, it did, because it, it was that, but even though I was with a group of people who uh, were very lovely people and we did have a great time chatting, 
the moments of isolation when you're walking on your own did give you time to contemplate. It was kind of like meditating in a way while on the move. It was so cathartic. I can't tell you. Did you like, because I have to say my absolute idea of a nightmare is to be on any kind of reality tv i might add i've not been asked but i've always thought i'm too i'm just too antisocial underneath it all and i can be sociable for bursts but is that what you're because the, the thought of having to be on the road with eight people well eight of them including you and yeah. quite an eclectic bunch as well it, i might add it indeed was an eclectic bunch and i've got to say my i do also have an aversion to kind of radio shows reality tv kind of programming mainly because it involves the element of um, voting for your favorite or on all that sort of nonsense. Yeah. And I don't want to ever get involved in some sort of popularity contest on that level. And also when I started doing this program, if you watch the entire series, you'll probably notice that in the episode, I didn't really say very much. And that's because the sort of person I am, I size up who I'm with, you know, even though, yes, my profession is a comedian, I'm not one of those people who just goes out and is on 24 seven because to me, that would be the most annoying person in the world. And it's only when I got to know these people that I sort of came out and got relaxed. And also maybe because I'm aware that the cameras are on us. I didn't want to be the foolish guy, you know, make, you're at the mercy of the edit, aren't you? So yeah. you don't know how they're going to present you. It's also, I think, it's a bit like first day at school. You end up sort of rushing into friendships because you just feel a bit like, oh, I need a friend. And then within a day, you're like, oh, no, that wasn't the right friend. And then you really regret all the oversharing and the overbonding. And you're like, oh, no, I'd quite like to ditch you now. And is this telling you more about me than it is about you? But do you know what I mean? You sort of say things you, you need to say to be accepted in a way. Absolutely. I mean, how many of us know that feeling of uh, going into uh, secondary school, for example, and in your first day meeting new people, you make these friends quickly. By your second year, you don't know them anymore because yeah. you've, you've established that you're a bit of a nutcase or there's nothing about us. And, and that's what it was. Like, I, I, apart from my, re my really good friends I've known for many, many years, and I don't just jump into things blindly. And I like to think I'm an intelligent sort of man. So you take things in, you take stock, and then you talk. But I don't just go blah, 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 blah. It's you're, not in my nature. You're quite careful, not careful, but um, like on Twitter, you're not someone who'll pile in and have a mean debate or say something inflammatory. You generally are a kind of nice, a nice man. And you are, I, you know, I know you're a little bit off stage, seen you lots on stage, and that is kind of you. So I guess... It, it wouldn't be in keeping for you to go and do something on a show like this where they're going to be like, oh, my God, did you see what Stephen K. Amos said about Boris Johnson or Meghan and Harry? It just wouldn't be your style, would it? I think you're absolutely right, because, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up before the advent of social media and all this knee-jerk reaction to certain things. So my whole uh, philosophy has been, I'm going to write something on social media. I want to write something that I could say to somebody's face. Yep. You know, I don't want to write anything that I'm going to regret. I don't want to write anything that could inflame a situation. I don't want to write anything that I'm not informed about. You know, as far as I'm concerned, an opinion, uh, I used to think an opinion was, was something kind of measured and considered. But, yeah. but as we all know, now know, opinions are just like, no, you I just know. say what you want. In our day, was it, by the time you'd thought what it was, written it, in handwriting, put it on the paper plane, attached it to the pigeon <laughs> and sent it to the person. There was lots of time to reflect. Are we the same age? Do you want to disclose your age or would you rather not? I would, you know, that is one thing. Again, that's a good question, actually, Kelly, because my whole thing 
about the whole social media is that don't give too much away. Yeah. Leave something. Yeah, you do keep yourself to yourself a bit in your private life, don't you? I am absolutely a very private person. Yeah. And uh, my date of birth is, is not revealed anywhere. I've never put anything on um, Wikipedia yeah. or, or anything like that. It's I, I don't Google myself. I can't, I, I've got friends of ours who Google them, who've got that thing called uh, a name alert or whatever. Yeah. That you can put oh, up. is there? That sounds horrendous. I'd like to have a name alert so I could avoid reading it. Is that an option? <laughs> well, I have no idea. Bad review that... alert. That'd be a good one. <laughs> I can't imagine the thought of waking up in the morning and there's those 20 alerts of people who said stuff about you. Who cares? Yeah, Who cares? and it's and it's very. I think if you're, it's the kind of idea that you're never as good as your best gig or as bad as your worst gig. And I guess if you're willing to believe the lovely stuff about yourself, you've got to be willing to believe the crap that's out there too. So in some ways, it's best to keep out of the playground, isn't it? That's what exactly what I do. I don't get involved in all that sort of nonsense. Uh, ever since doing Edinburgh all those years ago till now, I don't read, read reviews. I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, um, I don't uh, retweet or, or, or reviews or whatever because it's one person's opinion. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if I've done a gig and there's 500 people in the audience, a thousand people, 10, 20 people, one person in that group does not define what the show was. So why would you uh, uh, why would you uh, acknowledge someone saying it was great and then not acknowledge someone who says it was terrible? Yeah, but are you have... in gigs then? Are you? I mean, you've obviously been gigging a, a really long time, and I think um, it was the Sunday Times who said you're officially becoming a national treasure, Stephen. Ooh. Which means if you don't contradict it, you must be about eighty-five. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've well, seen I've you. Yet to, I've yet to receive a nod from any official organisation. <laughs> well, we're going to keep making sure that's the main aim of the podcast. Um, like I've got, you know, weigh in at the palace. But if you think about what you're like on stage, so you're massively likable on stage you don't you don't sort of try and make people feel uncomfortable and you're you kind of came into comedy through your capacity for crowd work and emceeing right so you've always had to connect with the people in the audience and you've not been afraid to take that head on is that right how, how do you actually feel about because like, are you letting yourself be seen then as an MC, or is it a curated version of yourself uh, well I think uh, because genuinely I do like people and I do have a, a respect for other people's ideas, ideologies, and whatever. And you know, I I, I want to celebrate mankind. If I honestly thought that every person was wicked and mean and horrible, I wouldn't be in this job. Why would I put myself in a situation where I could be torn down? Um, when I started comedy, it was really about it was a release. It was something to do. Um, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't about a career choice because back then. None of those things were guaranteed. Yeah, it wasn't a career know. choice, was it? Now there's loads of people setting out to be a professional comedian. I guess it was because when did you, when was your first gig? My first gig would have been 1994. Yeah, all when those years ago. When you were just three, which is weird, well, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I learned <laughs> very quickly. So clever. And I still had a dummy in my mouth. Um, <laughs> so my thing as well, when I started out and I was emceeing, in my head I thought the audience has to like me as a, as, as a group. Mm -hmm. They have to think I'm their friend. Mm -hmm. They don't have to believe that I'm funny. They just have to like me. Mm -hmm. And uh, in those days, I used to write uh, jokes on an A5 pad, mm -hmm. thinking that's how you did it, because I never went to comedy clubs. It wasn't my mm -hmm. thing. And um, I let the comics do their thing, and it was great. And I could respond as to how well or how badly the comic did, and it was all in the moment. And that, I, but I never really revealed anything 
about me, about who I am. It was just jokes and to a certain extent, jazz hands sort of showing mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And and I loved it. And did you have, so you said you weren't a sort of comedy, you didn't go to the comedy clubs. So what, what got you into wanting to, so you were you were kind of holding the comedy shows together and you were seeing yourself mm. very much as the kind of, I guess you're the sort of backbone of it and then people are coming on and going off. So what made you want to do it then if you weren't particularly a comedy person? Were you just a big well, show off? Well, do you know that, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yes, very big show off <laughs> because uh, I think back to my childhood, uh, I was in the nativity plays at primary school. Yeah, I played a shepherd. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't scripted in the nativity play, but they gave me a line. And I remember my line so clearly. Uh, it was, stop squabbling, you two. Uh, there's so much peace on earth or something like that was the line. I don't remember and that bit in the Bible, but nice. Neither do I. But you know what? I was <laughs> never very um, religious. So that kind of played into my hand. So um and at school, I was very into a drama, um, English. Uh, so I was d- lots of writing. In fact, two of my teachers from those formative years, my drama teacher, my English teacher, were the biggest influences of my life. Was this at because, secondary school? Yeah, at yeah. secondary school, because um, they were full of encouragement. They uh, had good critique on the, the stories that I wrote, which is very much based on fantasy and uh, a not real life and pretending to be somebody else. And I was in all the school productions. I was lo- very much into Amdram, but I never ever thought for one second it was an arena that would accept someone like me mm-hmm. professionally. Mm-hmm. And, and also from my family background, you know, I remember telling my dad and my mom, but actually, no, I remember this. Uh, during the summer holidays in my first year in secondary school, they, uh, one of my drama, te- the drama teacher said there was a four week course to go and do, uh, and go and be on a, on a theater retreat for young kids. And I begged my parents to allow me to do that. And they were like, theater, are you insane? Four weeks on some sort of camp pretending to be a tree. You <laughs> no, will be a, a point. No, they... <laughs> <laughs> you will be a lawyer. You will, you will not disgrace us in this manner. Is that what they said? Because you're one of a big family, right? With eight of you all together. Yeah. Is that why you wanted to do the pilgrimage? Because you just like to hunt around in a pack of eight. You're like, I grew up with eight. <laughs> I feel comfortable with eight. No. Do you know the, the worst thing about that? that no, there, there, there's a good thing and a bad thing. When you're one of uh, a number of uh, siblings, you have to make your voice heard. Yeah. Where did you come seen. in the pecking order, Stephen? Where are you? Myself, my twin sister, a joint third. Okay. Interesting yeah. position. Sort of middle act then. Exactly. Very yeah. much middle child syndrome. Yeah. Because I look, uh, and, and also after myself, my twin sister, there was a 10-year age gap. Oh, was there? Until the next lot came along. So for many, many years, we were the youngest. And so we you were the end we... of season one. Oh, in, in fact, the best and only season to be referred to. Yeah. Because the following seasons did not match up. No, I'm sure. They never do. The sequel's reviews. never as good as the original. I could have oh. told your parents that. Well, I, I tell them now. Yes, I think you do. So your parents so your parents came over um, to London from Nigeria in the 60s. Is that right? Yes, they did. 
And did, um, because I'm a fan of your book, you've got um, your lovely book. I used to say my mother was Shirley Bassey, and we can talk about that in a moment. Great (laughs) title for a book. See, it's something I've never been able to say. People have been like, what? It's Um, a straight hair, Callie. That's what it is. It definitely is. (laughs) And I can't sing. Uh, But (laughs) so when your your parents came over and what did, so they presumably came over thinking, you know, this will be great. We're going to be in the UK. Um, At that point, Nigeria was still under British rule, I guess, was it, when they came over? Indeed it was. Yes. And because they had, in their view, a very romanticized uh, uh, opinion of how Nigeria uh, governed, uh, how uh, Britain governed Nigeria, it made sense to visit the motherland mm. and, and, and uh, raise a family there and mm. be welcomed. But their actual reality was completely different, you know, and it's stuff they shielded us from. Uh, I'm very pleased to say because I, I well, as a child I had no idea this was happening to them or the things that they'd been through and still endured just because they want to give their kids a better chance in life. Yes, I guess London was a very, very different place in the sixties in regard to. I mean, it was yeah, it, it was it was very unba- imbalanced society, wasn't it? It was a homogenized society. There was success for certain groups of society, and there was it, you know when we think about Black Lives Matter and all that's gone on in the last year or eighteen months, that is such a far cry, isn't it, from the environment your parents would have been trying to bring up a family in. It was incredible because I since obviously I've spoken to my parents about their their lived experiences and when they, they had no idea when they arrived, A, how cold it would be, not just in terms of the weather, <laughs> but in terms of the people. Yeah, yeah. And the hostility, you know, and the the outright negativity in your face. You know, there's one thing, uh, uh, people being curious about who you are mm-hmm. and kind of asking questions. The other side of that is, absolute hatred that you've come in to take their jobs mm. and and also coming into this country with um a level of uh, education work experience to be told that that means nothing mm. when you arrive mm. and you've got to start at the bottom mm. to, to try and find accommodation and you're literally told no and sh- have a door slammed in your mm. face because obviously in those days you literally saw an ad in the paper or whatever and you went to the house mm. and then the people would, or, and you'd see signs on doors you know i used to do a joke about it no black no irish no dogs so for many many years my parents thought that london was being terrorized by a pack of black irish dogs <laughs> i love no <laughs> good joke but very sad context that made you write the joke because so if you in terms of what your parents kind of could do back then jobs wise so what did they have presumably they came from sort of very educated backgrounds uh, well regarded in the society they grew up in and then suddenly they're having to prove everything about their credentials so what did that mean for them career-wise what did they do while you were growing up for work uh my mother started in uh the nhs mm-hmm. as an orderly and wow. then yeah and then even before up... she was getting clapped on a thursday night so you know imagine how good it would have been now <laughs> it would have been wonderful if i told her i had a clap <laughs> and then she clapped for me on the thursday night <laughs> but um she started off as an, uh, an orderly and she you know later on in, in many years later she informed me about the things she had to do you know literally like cleaning the most disgusting things uh, and then but she trained retrained as a nurse and by the end was the ward sister you know, my dad, on the other hand, bus driver, um, uh, a, a train guard, um, security guard. He had so many jobs that we rarely saw him. 
right? We, and, and we moved houses so many times. We actually thought we were in the witness protection program because we couldn't place where we were. And, and my dad would lay out his clothes for the next day and we'd have to sort of play games guessing what job he was going to do. Like Mr. I mean, ben. Absolutely. There's a contemporary reference for our young listeners. (laughs) (laughs) This man, he worked literally 14-hour days. And it was really, I mean, this may be the the same for a lot of people whose parents, you know, had to really graft for for survival. That that formative years, from zero to about 10, 12, I rarely saw my dad really had the chance to have that father bond time at all and, is, and so that the moving right because you were in south london right was it chelsea that you were brought up in back when chelsea wasn't like chelsea is now oh do you know we, i was born in chelsea yeah. and st stephen's hospital and yeah. so you can imagine how much my parents had is to that why your name is that why you're thank Stephen? you very much yeah. yes and my twin sister is called hospital <laughs> um so uh, we were born in Chelsea, and then my parents moved to Wimbledon again when Wimbledon wasn't yeah, as it wasn't grand as it then. is. Yeah. And then they moved from Wimbledon to Hammersmith, yeah, but not very long. And then we moved back from uh, Hammersmith to Ballam. So Ballam, Southwest uh, Twelve, is kind of where I grew. In fact, the other day I walked, I drove past the old house we used to live in in Ballam, which was three stories and a basement. Wow. Why did they sell that? Why did they sell that? That would nowadays, that would be it now. You wouldn't ever need to work. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be comedying. You'd just be sitting in your garden. It, gro- growing I wouldn't be doing this, Callie. No, no. offence. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> oh, you would, because this would be a charming interlude in your afternoon <laughs> as you tended to your cabbages like something out of Peter Rabbit. Is um So in terms of your moving around, and you said your parents kind of protected you from what the climate was then. So, so in terms of school, and I've heard you talk about, you know, starting at primary school, and we'll tell the story about running home after your first day at primary school which I love oh, oh thank you yeah well basically you know uh when you're at home with your parents uh your parents they didn't prepare us for any negativity they were just parents doing the best they could and uh we had no reason to believe uh there was hideousness out there you know as young children are with their 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 rosy view of life and I remember my first day at primary school I ran back home and I said, Mom, apparently there's a black boy in my class. I can't find him anywhere. <laughs> and Mum was like, it is you. I'm sorry to inform you. And that's because that was the first, in those days, there was my, me and my twin sister and probably two other black kids in the entire school. And, of and course, you must have gone to different school if you were moving house. So you must have had to keep being the first kid to go into the school because you were, so it wasn't even like I've gone in people. Because I always, I think at the moment, it's, you know, I'm sure well, I won't say what you must be thinking about it, but I think I would not be alone in saying the world seems to be going backwards in terms of us accepting anyone who's not like ourselves. And the idea yeah. that difference doesn't mean less is such an important way to just live in the world, isn't it? And it's so sad nowadays that we're getting to that point where we're like, oh, you don't seem like me. I better hate you. But yeah. I, I think probably, you know, in those days when you were going to school, it, it, it was probably like people were kind of hiding in plain sight. They didn't even probably feel that what they were saying or thinking or doing was wrong. Right? It was just the society they were in. So if you weren't the same as them, were they allowed? Did they think they were just allowed to be nasty? It's funny, but it wasn't just the kids. It was the teachers who would make you know comments or who would 
uh, uh, pronounce uh, a, an Asian kid's name incorrectly and laugh behind their register. Wow. You know. I hadn't even um, thought about the teachers doing it. I was just thinking kids can be oh, mean. It hadn't occurred oh, to me. Educated adults could be mean. See, I love this notion that children can be mean. Where do they get that from? Yeah. It, I don't think children can be mean. These are stuff, things they've heard. Yeah. When I was at primary school, there was a very big sick primary school, maybe coming into secondary school. The sitcoms that were out then, you know, uh, the Alf Garnet, the um, mind your language. Brian I mean, Faber, that was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah. You would hear stuff on a Friday night on television as a family, because back then there was only three channels. We'd be watching the comedy show. It may be uh, Mind Your Language or Love Thy Neighbor. We'd hear that, watch it. We would cringe. The family would cringe. Me and my sister and my uh, brother, as, as young kids, would know without any uncertainty that by Monday morning, what we'd heard on the screen will be thrown in our faces. And that's what happened on a regular basis. In fact, one of my greatest sort of sadnesses is that because we moved around so many times, I don't have friends from those years. I never, I never formed those kind of friendships and bonds that kind of go with you through your life. And you don't have a chance to grow with those people mm -hmm. and reminisce and talk about those days. And, you know, I've, I've got friends from sort of late college <laughs> onwards, but not from those early years. Namaste, motherfuckers. I mean, I guess there must have been a sense of you being underestimated then, that people, teachers were making assumptions about you that were entirely not related to your capacity, your brain, your talent. They were just making assumptions, presumably, where they were heavily underestimating what you could and would go on to be. Oh, the assumptions that were made. Can you imagine the horror of me at 14, 15, saying to my careers advisor, which we all had, to, I don't know if that's a thing now, where you put all your life uh, uh, choices with a man in a cardigan, mm -hmm. and he tells you that this is what you should do. And since uh, 14, 15, we're all children, we don't really know. And uh, the careers advisor said, um, um, oh, bus driver, conductor, or maybe sports. You people run, don't you? Gosh. You people run. <laughs> I mean, the idea, well, I mean, anyway, putting your life decisions in the hands of a man in a cardigan. I've tried that in my dating life, uh, Stephen, and that also doesn't go well. But, um, but I, actually, I remember my careers advisor. Um, I, I suspect you and I might be of a similar vintage. And my careers advisor in the mid 80s said, um, just looked at all my qualifications. And I was quite naughty at school. I was, I was clever, but I was very rebellious. And she just looked at my uh, my sort of my sort of list of whatever I was about to do my O levels in as they were back then, and she just said, "Oh yeah, you could you could try and be a secretary if you learn to do um, touch typing." That was it. And wow. I was like, not that there's anything wrong with being a secretary, but I do remember thinking, oh, there's a few things I'm quite interested in that might indicate that that would be um, that, that might not be the best idea. And so, do you think in terms of finding your voice? So was that was that an important thing? Because I guess what you've done is you've gone on and you did it at a time when the the comedy world was extremely racist there were it was loaded up with stereotypes from mothers-in-laws to race to religion so you going and doing that was a bit of a fuck you to people sort of saying this is what someone like you will be I guess you're yeah. going well actually this is who I am and it might not be at all what you're expecting was there a kind of conscious sense of any of that do you know what when I think back uh, I think there must have been because um at school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do or what path I was going to take. I did enjoy theatre, as I've said, 
My parents were not supportive in any way. Not your mum either, so neither of them wanted you to do it. Oh gosh, no, not at all, not at all. And and I used to resent them for it. However, looking back, I can see it was a protection thing. They didn't want me to go, because they'd never seen anybody on television Mm. or anybody, if they weren't a singer or, or in fact, when Trevor McDonald ever appeared on TV reading the news, we would gather around as a family. That was a thing, it was a Mm. moment. Mm. You know, and uh, at school, I, I did become the weird, I don't mean to sound uh, uh, so like, oh, it just sounds like a, not a trope, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, not a stereotype, but a cliche mm-hmm. that, you know, the class clown, you know, and not because I was bullied per se, but because I wanted something about me that people would like and enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I was funny. Um, I, I didn't really pay attention in, in class. And I, 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 so academically, at, in the early days, not very good at all. Mm-hmm. And I didn't appreciate at that time the disappointment that would mean for my parents, mm-hmm. who'd made a sacrifice mm-hmm. for their kids. And I remember coming home with my um, O level results and my mum just going, Oh, Lord Jesus, how can we look our friends in the <laughs> eyes when we tell them our son Stephen? Is not just a simpleton, but he has a certificate to prove it. Look at this boy. Um, so, so later on in life, when I, I, I studied law, um, criminal Because you're justice. not a guy who wouldn't be, I mean, no, as I say, knowing you a bit and knowing what how fast your brain works and how big your brain is, it sounds to me that no one expected you to be all right academically, so no one probably supported <laughs> you to be. And so you probably were like, well, sod it then, I'll piss about. I mean, if no one's giving you that confidence or giving you a chance to prove that you can do something you probably d- write yourself off a bit do you as a kid when everyone's telling you a story about yourself well you do in a way and that's why I thought my parents used to drum into us like a lot of parents do for a lot of people uh, or get an education get an education once you have that degree a piece of paper in your hand nobody can take it away doesn't matter what happens after that but once you've got it you've got it and I remember when I was about maybe 12 or 13, we had a next door neighbor. Uh, uh, her name was Femi Taylor. And all I remember from her was she was a glamorous black woman, young black woman. And I thought, oh, and we got to know each other. The fact she lived on her own, we were a whole family next door. And then as we got to know her, saying hello, hello, it transpired that she was an actress and she was currently starring at that time in one of the lead roles in Cats the musical in the West End. And I was like, oh, oh, that's really exciting. What? She went, oh, I'll get your tickets. She drove us to the theatre, gave us the best seats in the house, and I was in awe. Was that the first time, had your parents taken you to anything like that before? Or was that the first time you went to see something on a big scale in the theatre? The very first and only time my parents ever took us as a family to the theatre was to watch a show called Ippy Tombi. Oh, yes. Which was a yeah. South African musical. Yes. And my parents are Nigerian, no, but the connection was Africa. Well, wasn't it right? written by, wasn't it written by a white woman? I only found this out years later. Yeah. Bear in mind, I was a child, so I yeah. had no idea. And, yeah. I, and I guarantee my parents had no idea it was written by a white woman. Yeah. Uh, cast by It kind of changes what, you th- what we all thought it was back then, doesn't it, in a way? To be honest, it made me a bit sick. Yeah. Because, like, you know, um, I don't know if, anyway, this is, this is going off tangent, but whenever I go to Ed- the Edinburgh Festival, there's always the Lady Boys of Bangkok, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, great big production, they sell out. 
And I found out that the people who bring them over aren't even from Thailand. Right. They're not Thai people. That's, you know what I mean? There's just, oh, it made me sick. Anyway. Yeah. So but that was parents, the first thing you went to see with your parents. And that was something they consciously wanted to take you to see. Absolutely. Yeah. The only time I've been to the theatre with my parents. And is that when, that. so did that have a big impact on you? Because I guess that was a whole other, you like drama, but suddenly you're seeing it on that scale or did it not? I'll, I'll be honest, it didn't because at home, my parents used to play um, Nigerian African music, you know, Afrobeat, King Sonny Ade, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Fela Kuti, uh, all these big inspirational mm-hmm. uh, uh, musicians who were around when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. We used to hear that all the time at home. You know, but as young British kids, as we thought we were, we were like, oh, we don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're singing another language. Oh, we're going to the theatre now. Oh, what's going on? They're singing in this other language. Right. So uh, we were kind of removed You didn't from identify that. with it or think this uh, anything Not you wanted all. to do. Not like Cats. No. Imagine if you'd seen the movie of Cats, the recent one. <laughs> Instead of that, you'd never have got on the stage again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Could have been a very different story. Oh, what a memory! <laughs> <laughs> and did you um in your so in your book? Um, I used to say my mother was Shirley Bassey, and we'll put links to all of this in the show notes. But the your book, um, and I read it. You wrote it a few years ago, right? I, I read it. Um, God, before I became a comedian, which isn't that long ago, but it must have been seven, eight years ago. I read it. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, and. It seems in your book that it was about there's a kind of picture that's quite chaotic in a way of your of your kind of extended family and your upbringing and your humour. It seemed that your humour just was a sort of thing you did to I don't know, was it to stand out, to survive? It just seems that was a very much a part of you since you can remember. Oh, it's very much part of me. Uh, when I was growing up, my twin sister and I were the best of friends, had an older brother, older sister who were the golden children because that was when my parents were fairly young it was their first experience of of, of children so they were kind of uh, wrapped in cotton wool by the time they had it was us oh well we've done this before let them get on with it and twins so, are harder as well i guess that's kind of exhausting baby twins are not 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 known to be the easiest thing to have in a family we didn't know no that it wasn't we, your fault we're just kids no. we had no idea yeah. i mean there's nothing worse when you have and people who whose uh family unit consists of many siblings may experience this as well where your parents accidentally call you by the wrong name yeah 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 and it's just like that's it was so frustrating yeah i'm like, living how many times <laughs> do you have to see my face before you can or even worse sitting around the dinner table my mum leans to my brother points to me and says who is dad i cannot remember this child why is he here? <laughs> you, know? you did well so, to have a roof over your head as long as you did by the sounds of it. <laughs> and is it, um, I, I know that you you very sadly lost your twin, Stella. You lost your twin a couple of years ago. And, I mean, losing a sibling anyway is, is kind of beyond most people's comprehension um, if they're lucky enough not to have gone through this. But to lose a twin... I mean, that must be, you talked um, when you were talking about the pilgrimage, about the walking being quite mindful, but how the hell do you cope with losing, you know, losing that person? It, it's, it's, it is one of the worst things that can happen to, to anybody mm. uh, that is close to somebody. But, you know, when you're so close to someone mm-hmm. and you, you share the, the same experiences in terms of, of a womb, 
those little distant memories must be there somewhere. You share a weird secret language and, and contact that no one else can infiltrate. Mm. Um, it was the second time in my life, I've just got goosebumps now, the second time in my life where I've experienced uh, anxiety. Mm -hmm. I never knew what that was before. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was on stage and, and I couldn't, I, my body was shutting down. Mm -hmm. I'm on stage, my throat was constricting. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get to the end of it. I knew where the punchline was meant to be. I couldn't get there. I had a direct rash. I felt empty. And I was just like, wow, what, what? And I questioned, you know, the meaning of life, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. how things are unfair. And, you know, that's my, that's one of my philosophies, you know, just live your best life. Mm. Do, do, do what you want to do. Why got to know, there's no answering to anybody, mm -hmm. but it, it was devastating. It's funny how your body sometimes tells you what your mind doesn't want to know, right? So we try and sort of tell ourselves we can cope and it's, it, it, obviously it's not fine, but we can keep on keeping on. And then often I know at times when I've suffered from kind of, you know, difficult things and sort of that have led to depression or anxiety, I've kind of just tried to ride it out and be the strong kind of funny, nice person I am. Mm. And then your body will just keep giving you signs going, actually, hello, you're yeah. not okay right now. This is not okay. And your mind keeps trying to ignore it to survive, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And what did you do? Cause it, it, it's been also a hell of a time to have gone through that and then go through this awful you know, time in the pandemic where we've all been a bit isolated and a bit lonely. So I guess you were only just processing the grief of that. And then you go into this really strange pandemic existence. You do feel really lonely. You feel, I, I used to be quite, dis, I'm ashamed to say, quite dismissive of, of people who said, you know, I mean, I've got anxiety. I've got, I'm like, what is that? What do you mean? Mm. Or I may have been one of those people who just said, oh, get on with it or pull mm. yourself together. Mm. Uh, and because of my job, you know, you are meant to be the life and soul of the party, blah, 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 and, you know, entertain us all. And you can't share that, the sadness. People don't mm -hmm. want to see the sadness. Mm -hmm. They want to see the happy guy, the funny guy who can turn every situation round. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for me, when this happened, I was actually in Australia and uh, got a phone call. And this is, this is the tragic part of it, or I got a phone call. I was in the middle of a tour in Australia and I thought, but I'm, I need to come back to London. So mm -hmm. I left, came back to London two days later. That's when I could get a flight. And uh, my brother, my older brother was there to pick me up at the airport. And I thought he has never done this before. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, let's go straight to the hospital. And he just shook his head and, oh, how we left the airport. I don't know. Mm. And then I was in London for about three days and I thought, there's nothing I can do. I, I can either stay here and wait till we organize everything and just descend into something that I don't want to ever face, or I can go back to Australia and finish what I was meant to do, mm -hmm. which is what I, exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was the right decision or not, I don't know, because that's when I had the shakes, I, I, my voice and my body was shutting down but I got through it. You were in probably a kind it. of PTSD response, I guess, like someone who's just seen and lived through something horrific. And I think intellectually, you can't even process it at that point. So any beating up of yourself you might do for whatever decision you make, you're literally trying to survive and you're just doing the best you can do at the time. And, you know, you, you, I guess you have to totally forgive yourself for that because what was the right decision going to be when you've just, there is no right decision. Life's not going to be okay. 
well, life's never going to be, I guess, the same again. I guess that's what you realize when you lose someone, you've lost that bit of, I had somebody said to me the other day that there's some idea that when a terrible tragedy happens, you look back at all the things that happened before the tragedy and you cannot believe you were making a fuss about the sun not being out or the bus coming mm. late or the dog shitting on the carpet because you're like, from this day onwards, those things were just in another part of a universe. They don't feel the same anymore. So so I, I hope you forgive yourself and are very nice to yourself about that. Um, and also you are very popular in Australia. So think of all the Australians <laughs> you made happy by going back <laughs> when you did. Did you, what is it that, um, that I know when I- and also, um, yeah. I, Sorry to interrupt there, Kelly. Again, that thing about you you said that I was I'm quite a private person. In that moment, I didn't share any of this on social media. Yeah, I was gonna I ask who because, supported you, who had your back yeah, because, at that point. I, I've got my, my family are amazing people, and I've got um two very, very best friends mm-hmm. who have been there. Yeah, I think you know one of them very well, mm-hmm. who have been there for 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these, I'm I I don't have a fair weather friends. I've never been one of these comics who goes out to parties or or people think I have a a, a, a rock and roll lifestyle. You know, sex drive. This is so far from the truth. I don't do any of that. I do my gigs and I come home. That is it. Well, um, you are quite a philanthropist. Like you're very, you're certainly altruistic. I would say. Like I, I um, when I was introduced to you, I know we've met met a few times, but. You were very uh, kind to me when I, you met me and I'd been going kind of well under a year. And I remember I had a gig, a little shitty gig in Edinburgh in a pub basement and you actually came along and watched. And were, I think we might have got you to do a quick turn, but you were incredibly supportive. And similarly, when you met my autistic son after a show, you were incredibly kind of generous with your time. So I do also think you might not be the one who goes to the parties and gets off their tits on, uh, you know, coke <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, whatever else. But you are somebody who takes the time after the show also to talk to your fans. I mean, one of the things that struck me, I didn't realise, I knew obviously you're very well known over here, but I had no idea that you're kind of like an obsession in Australia and <laughs> Australians will see you in the street and they, they're they just about, you know, throwing their knickers at you. It's like, like, like Tom Jones is to menopausal women. Do you know what, do you know what I think where it stems from? I think it stems from my, uh, my two teachers, because if it wasn't for their encouragement, they didn't have to do that. Then maybe I wouldn't be doing this job. I wouldn't have been... Uh, uh, interested in language and, and English and storytelling and, and uh, drama uh, theatrics. It doesn't cost anything to be a decent person and to pass on advice, encouragement. Particularly, a friend of mine said to me recently, and this is a friend of mine who used to uh, be the mechanic for my car. So we just became very friendly. And one day he came to see me and brought his daughter. I think she was 13. And we, we all had a chat. And the next one I saw him, he said to me that the, the daughter said to him, wow, he's so nice. I can't believe he just spoke to me. And I, and it, and I just it didn't occur to me that yeah, because she's a child, I'd ignore her completely mm. and just talk to the dad, but give time because that's what I would have wanted to happen to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost anything. Like people think that comedians are rivals and whatever. If I see a new comic and they ask me for advice, I'll give advice, you know, I'm not my ego is not massaged to the point that it's all about me because there's always a bigger picture i don't know if a little gesture that i've done will affect somebody in a profound way mm-hmm. i mean i mean what when i did a show many years ago now in edinburgh called all of me and that was the first time i publicly said something within the show of um 
oh, and by the way, I'm attracted to men. Mm -hmm. That's the line I used. Mm -hmm. Because even back then, I couldn't say the words, I am gay, mm -hmm. right? And about three weeks later, two weeks later, uh, did the, doing the same show, as you know, in Edinburgh, I uh, came out the venue and this young lad, who was probably about 19, came up to me, a white lad, and said, I just saw your show and I was really moved by that thing you said, talking about being gay. I've been struggling with it for a while now. I'm going to go home now and tell my parents I'm gay. Wow. It was like, And then when he was living in a hostel by the weekend, you've got that on your yeah, conscience. Yeah, I felt so. really bad. I thought, oh, dear, <laughs> where can I send some money? <laughs> you did do, um, you did a documentary. Though. I remember watching it like, God, it's got to be over 10 years ago. You did a documentary, was it on Channel 4? It was about on Channel how 4. the prejudice against being gay, um, not just in uh, in the sort of British black community, I guess. That was the kind of thrust mm. of it, right? The thrust of it. Look at me getting all oh, well, innuendo. But um, well, so, so that was so that was quite a and again only 10, 15 years ago, but it, it was it was a very different world, wasn't it, in terms of what people were willing to go on screen and say and challenging those kind of stereotypes. So that must have been mm. a bit of a big decision, was it, to do that? It was a huge decision, and I will tell you why. I was um, I was doing, a, 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 again, another tour of Australia, and when I got back, I think the news was on in the background, and they had an item or story, I should say, about a body that was found in Clapham Common. Mm -hmm. And I glanced up and they showed a picture and it was somebody that I knew. And I was just like, wow, what we're still... I think I remember the story you're talking about. It was horrific. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. still attacking horrific. people to the point yeah. of death. Yeah, And I thought, and that's what led to that show in Edinburgh, all of me, because I thought, mm -hmm. you know what? I don't ever want to live my life looking over my shoulder mm -hmm. i want to be honest straight down the line mm -hmm. there's no uh, double standards there's no you know wiggling about i'm gonna uh, you know i wear a, a ring on my right hand on the uh traditionally the wedding ring finger mm -hmm. people make assumptions think mm -hmm. i'm married I, mm -hmm. I buy myself something after every tour mm -hmm. this was one of them mm -hmm. you know it didn't even occur to me people think i'm married i wasn't trying to deceive anybody mm -hmm. if anybody asked me a direct question i will tell them my friends and family have always known mm -hmm. and i thought Do you know what i don't think i've seen anybody in the media that has a positive image or story about the gay black experience. So a person of color actually making a documentary about the fact that they're gay was a brand new, because you won awards for that, right? Um, you, you... I, I, I did, and I was quite naive, to be honest. I was very naive because um, um, I, I didn't expect to be seen as a role model. I didn't, it was something that was really important to me to say and mm -hmm. put out there. And the, the title, very, again, provocative, called Batty Man, mm -hmm. which is a very derogatory term, mm -hmm. uh, particularly within uh, the, the black community and the young urban kids or whatever. And so I just wanted to find out what the kids had to say, the mm -hmm. young people. And uh, they cited uh, religion, they cited uh, certain music stars, a certain type of music, uh, which led that story, the documentary, to go to Jamaica mm -hmm. and uh, question people there. I talked to the Archbishop of um, Kingston. He was brilliant. Um, but what I should have delved into, and now, you know, 10 years late, whatever, um, is the, the, the reasons behind it, the, the religious aspect, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the, the legal aspect, mm -hmm. all of which were introduced to 
Africa and mm-hmm. the Caribbean by white Britain. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, yeah. The legacy of the um, uh, uh, the, the religious uh, sayers, the colonial stuff that was taken, and 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 the deception was was horrific. Let's be honest. Um, you know, uh, from from the missionaries going to Africa, telling them what they were doing was wrong, going to the Caribbean, telling them what they're doing was wrong, to the lawmakers, you know, who are dividing up the land, who are dividing up the different um, uh, tribes and sections, uh, to, to to make to forming the legislation that that we now uh, in in modern twenty first uh, Great Britain have rejected or or. Or, or, or rewritten. We're now criticizing yeah. those countries for still we holding on to it. We started it, and now we're like yeah. we're finishing it. It's like we should never have started it to begin with. Is um, I, I wanted to ask, did you ever oh. get a chance to thank your teachers, those two teachers who made such an impact? Oh, wonderful question. Um, I have been looking for my English teacher, uh, for many years, and I can't find him. His name was Mr. Matthews. He was well. I was going to say he's very tall. But I don't know because I was not tall then. So um, he had a, he was blonde, he had a beard and um, I haven't found him. Uh, the other teacher was uh, Mrs. Dueck, Ruby Dueck. And I did. That's an easier an, name to track down. But I did an interview for the Times Educational Supplement mm-hmm. where I mentioned this, these two teachers. And then about nine months later, I did a gig in, um, Greenwich at mm-hmm. the big maritime museum, probably mm. about a thousand people, maybe more. And I came off and I was standing backstage. And then the organizer said to me, Oh, there's a couple here wanting to see you. I said, Really? I've got, I don't know anyone who's turning up here. I said, What do they look like? And he said, Oh, they're about 70. I was like, Really? I said, Can you find out their names? And then he went away, came back, and he went, Mrs. Dueck? <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. And I, I went, Yes. And then I, I went out and I saw her and she obviously looked, you know, uh, a, a bit different yes. than how I remember, but still a tiny, tiny woman. You know, I, I felt like I was a giant. And oh, she was just like a friend of mine to help because she continued with her teaching career and ended up being the head of department at something or whatever. And she said a friend of hers told her about the article and so she looked for me. How amazing. And I wow. just said, thank you. It was so emotional. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. I bet it was. Well, if Mr. Matthews, if you're a fan of Namaste Motherfuckers, uh, we will. <laughs> we were, it's like Scylla, isn't it? Surprise, surprise. Namaste Motherfuckers. What would you pick as your Namaste Motherfucking moment? My Namaste Motherfucking moment has got to be I went to see a friend of mine who had emigrated from uh, London to New York because he wanted to be in the bright lights in the big city. And I was visiting him for a long weekend. Uh, and at the same time, a friend of his called Delphi Manley was also visiting. I didn't know her. So we all stayed in his apartment, which was about one block away from the Empire State Building. We're mm-hmm. right in the middle of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And we had this ma- mad weekend and we went to all these little venues and we had brunch where you had bottomless margaritas and we had a laugh. And at the end of the weekend, she was in before I was. And she said to me, do you know, you are really funny. Have you thought of doing comedy? And I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, we've just had a great laugh. 
And she went, give me a call. I actually used to run comedy clubs at university. I'm going to run comedy clubs when I get back home to London. I went, oh, okay. And about six months later, I called her up. She remembered me. She took me to my first ever comedy club, which was on Fulham Palace Road. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called the Cosmic Comedy Club. And about three months later, she started a comedy club called the Big Fish Comedy Club and asked me to be the resident MC. Wow. Off the bat, never seen me do stand-up before, but had un undeniable uh, belief in me. Within six months, she had five clubs running weekly. Wow. I was the resident host for all of them. Yeah. What great training that was. Yeah. And what, an I mean, that was, I was like, what? And it's only when I speak to, you know, people who are now household names, that they, they, they laugh at me. Because back then I was using an A5 pad with jokes written on them. Yeah. And they were seasoned pros going, have you seen this idiot? But they didn't tell me that at the time. But, but you found they, your chops doing that, I guess. And, and then I found yeah, my voice. Yeah. And emceeing is, I, I prefer emceeing actually to being a sport. I love it. And I just do think it's a brilliant way to sort of hone what you do. And if you like dealing with kind of crowd work, it's a brilliant thing. Well, she had, she'd seen you emcee that whole weekend socially. She was like, this guy's funny. <laughs> and uh, mind you, she'd only seen you a few margaritas to the wind. When she saw you sober, she was like, oh, he didn't need a notepad when he was with us. <laughs> When he was with us in the bar. What's your favourite joke, Stephen? Oh, my favourite joke. This is a very difficult question. I've got many favourite jokes. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to think of one that uh, uh, will sort of stand the test of time. Um, I, with my comedy, I like to also challenge people. Mm -hmm. I like to make people think. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly get too political because um, I don't have all the answers. So one of my jokes is that, you know, well, you'd know this, we like to say anything that will get a reaction. Mm -hmm. If it's a groan, if mm -hmm. it's a laugh, mm -hmm. if it's a shock, it's something. Mm -hmm. So uh, a joke that, uh, a favourite joke that I'm doing now is, um, this year we've had a lot of changes. And of course, one of the biggest ones, that America have got a new president. Because some people are saying that Donald Trump did a bad job of being the president. So I, for one, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, maybe we should cut him some slack. Hear me out. <laughs> Just because you do a bad job once, it does not make you a bad person. My uncle recently beheaded a woman. Not a bad person. Bad magician. <laughs> and that joke disarms people like you would never believe. As soon as I mention Donald Trump, there's a reaction. As soon as I say, cut him some slack, there's a reaction. But as soon as I pull the rug and go, magician, they go. I have to say, until you got to the last word, I was like, shit, I'm going to have to cut this bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's gone a bit all right, mental. He's doing the Proud Boys. <laughs> I'll give you another one. This, 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 this is just a very simple one. Um, like, like um, my mum having twins. I remember when I was a kid, I said, mum, not when I was a kid, I remember mum having twins, okay? Why wouldn't I? Because I'm one of the twins. But years later, I said, you know, mum, tell me honestly, what was it like having twins? My mum was like, oh, Stephen, it was like all the joy and beauty of having one child, but totally ruined. Thanks very much. <laughs> and I think that, that stems from the fact that, you know, she had work to do. 
She had so much on her hands. <laughs> See, there's not enough therapy in all the world to sort out our childhood. <laughs> and um, if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening, what would it be? Oh, one bit of advice. Um, ideas are cheap. Keep on having them. Nice. Thank you, Stephen. That was one of the loveliest men I know, Stephen K. Amos. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try. And this week, I am going to read The Old Ways, A Journey on Foot by Robert McFarlane. It's a book about landscape and the human heart, sacred encounters and wild walks. I think I'm probably one of a lot of people who got through lockdown with a lot of walks. I thought I knew the area I lived in until lockdown happened and I got to walk it in a lot more detail. So um, I'm kind of gone a bit passionate about walking wild walks or urban walks. So all going to be about walking for me this week. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. So that's enough of me burbling on. That is it for the show for this week. Thank you again so much to Stephen for joining me. We will be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to award-winning crime writer Mark Billingham. I mean, every writer will say, oh, I'll write for myself. But at the end of the day, when I write, there's a reader over my shoulder. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.